This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A uh, Pew Research study published yesterday suggests that Canadians are more worried about American power and influence and refugees living the mid- uh, leaving the Middle East. Honestly, it's kind of funny that that gets uh, sort of positioned because that's one of the uh, minor things in the list. Uh, Canadians identified climate change as what they are concerned the most about. Uh, 60% of Canadians worry about climate change, 55% worry about uh, ISIS, and then from there it goes 38% uh, United States is a threat to the country only 25% say the same about uh, refugees uh, living in Iraq and Syria, says Reuters. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Henry. How are you today? Just great, Scott. You can tell we're in the summer when we're hearing information like this. Yeah, I, that's right, because uh, the politicians are, aren't doing, aren't at work, at least at work in their legislatures. They're out scattered all around the country or all around the province, so we don't hear much about them. Are you surprised of what this uh, study says or what this uh, survey says? Canadians identify climate change as the biggest concern. I guess I'm somewhat uh, surprised at the number, but then I start thinking about it and say, okay, what over the last year, what what have people been thinking, talking about? And one of the first things that comes to mind were those images, and we all saw them on TV, the, these very threatening images of the huge fire out in Alberta, the forest fire, and people trying to get out and driving between, you know, on a highway, and there's huge fires on both sides. And we saw those images, and then a lot of people associated that with, we know, with with climate change, violent weather, uh, stronger storms, more flooding, um, which we know is going on uh, when you look at the statistics on, for example, home insurance and property insurance. A number of years ago, it was fire. Now in Ontario, uh, it's it's water. And so people are, are seeing more violent storms of whether very dry or very wet. And, uh, you know, and they're seeing on TV the, uh, you know, all these big icebergs coming down, the glaciers melting. And, you know, I think there's a lot of concern. I mean, I, when I think about it, that's, that is a lot of concern. And, and I've seen it even, uh, one thing that hit me a number of years ago is over in the United Kingdom, I was talking to conservative politicians, and they were very different from our own, and they were they were very worried about climate change. And then I looked where their constituencies were. They were all in south, southern England, along the Thames, and along uh, areas that flood. And so it doesn't matter what political party, what your political views are, <laughs> when you're constantly standing in waist-deep water inside your house, you start to worry about those things. Uh, why do you think a difference from how Americans answered this question? Their number one concern was ISIS, uh, cyber attacks from other countries, and then climate change ranking third. Yeah, well, the, the cyber attacks, they I mean, they have just gone through an episode of, uh, of, of, of the Russians uh, trying to influence the election, trying to hack into things. And they've been, you know, Russia's been, uh, America's been the target. We've had relatively little, oh, you still have to worry a bit here. We have relatively little big stories about cyber attacks on Canada, but the cyber attacks on the U.S. have been, you know, received a great deal of uh, press coverage, and they continue to do so. So that that I, that I don't think we should be too, uh, you know, concerned about. 
Uh, do you think that uh, climate change is taking a front seat in Canada because of the fact that we don't have to worry or haven't been worried, uh, I guess, about ISIS or cyber attacks uh, interfering with elections or anything from other countries? Well, as far as we know, I, uh, no one's tried to uh, attack our elections through cyber attacks. I know some people, you know, there have been some, I think, smaller attacks, but it's basically people trying, you know, people trying to get into our uh, online uh, business dealing so they could use our credit cards uh, and that sort of thing, uh, but uh, haven't attacked our elections, so like they have in the United States. Um, and in terms of uh, uh, ISIS, we've really only had maybe one serious uh, attempt, and it was, in, you know, and it didn't, you know, and it, it turned out it was caught in Toronto a number of years ago, and uh well, if you're sitting in, you know, London, you know, uh, I can remember even, you know, I had an interview, it was over 12 years ago, 11, 12 years ago, uh, at New Scotland Yard with the, the number two guy in t- terms of terrorism in the U.K., and he wanted to speak to me and a group I was with, Canadians, he knew we were Canadians, but he said, we want to tell you, this this thing is really serious. Well, it was very, very serious in the U.K., they've had a, a repeated attacks, we haven't had those attacks, and so we feel sort of, you know, it's not a big problem for us. It's something that we see help happening elsewhere, but we don't really feel it's going to help. Ha- no, it's not happening here very much. Sixty uh, percent worried about climate change. Fifty-five percent about uh, ISIS. Do you think that figure's high? Uh, well, yeah, it, I think that's more news-driven. I don't know. I mean, ISIS hasn't done a lot. I mean, even though we have, you know, troops helping out in various places in the, in the Middle East, ISIS hasn't really targeted Canada very much. And I think I think we, one of the things that I think is fortunate, uh, certainly over the last year for us, is I think ISIS, like many other people, you know, react to emotionally to certain things. And what they react to uh, oftentimes are leaders of countries. And so, Donald Trump, they see as somebody who's a very, very hardliner against ISIS. And, of course, he's very dramatic when he makes his speeches, when he says those things. So it puts them on edge. Now, you compare that with our prime minister, sort of laid-back, cool type of guy. He, he doesn't make these you know, dramatic statements saying we're going to crush ISIS, we're going to fight him and all that. We may be doing it, but he doesn't talk about that. So I think... I think, uh, you know, the, um, you know, and so the result is I don't think uh, ISIS pays much attention to us because emotionally they don't feel like they're angry at our, our prime minister. Well, Donald Trump is a, is, a, is a good target for them to be angry at, and I think Americans know that. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he certainly does represent it, that in the brand. Uh, yeah. Then down at 38% of Canadians see the United States as a threat to uh, Canada. Boy, my, it's amazing how times have changed. Uh, again, it's still only 38%, but a third. How, how do you explain that? Well, I think they're, uh, you know, when Trump, again, when Trump came in, he was going to do a border tax. He was American first. He was going to make sure that he was going to create jobs in the United States. And a lot of Canadians said, well, maybe he's going to try to pressure businesses, particularly foreign, you know, American businesses, cut down their plants in the United States, uh, Canada, and move them to the United States. And I think that terrified a lot of people. They they were worried about their jobs moving out of the country. Um, And... uh, they heard the statement, you know, you know, the statements that was Trump was making in various ways. Now, as it turns out, it looks like 
you know, the actually what Trump is going to do when it comes to, and with the, especially with NAFTA renegotiation and other type of measures, there, there, I think there, it's going to turn out to be not, not a, not a, a big deal at all. I mean, his language, I think, is a lot more dramatic than what's likely to happen here. So, much, um, much like you said before, I mean, you know, if that's yeah. the way you go stomping through the China shop, that's what you'll be represented as. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and he's made these dramaticest, you know, and even though they, you know. Trudeau came down there, okay, had a nice meetings with him, and then when we went home, then Trump started making all these negative comments about the, you know, what Canada was doing to take away American jobs, and uh, you know, uh, the people in Canada pay attention to that. We pay um, Canadians pay a careful attention to whatever the president has to say about Canada, and I think that's always been true. And they're really worried about what Trump has to say about us. Uh, refugees, 25% say the same about refugees leaving Iraq and Syria. Uh, interesting that uh, even uh, 55% worry about uh, terrorism and ISIS. Uh, 25, only 25% are worried about our, uh, refugees. Yeah, I, 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 again, I think people, we... We have we interact with a lot of these people, and uh, you know, and and I think we know a, a lot of Canadians know people who are refugees, one way or another, and they they don't view them as very threatening. Compared to the America, the U.S. has been a much more isolated country, and while it does have, you know, it's. Um, uh, there's a there's a lot of people who've never met uh, you know a lot of these people who are refugees. I've had you know I've had one person. I was down in the U.S. a little while ago, and a person saying, you know, he how he's scared of Muslims and all this. And I said, well, do you know any Muslims? No, he doesn't know any. Everything he knows about Muslims, he's seen on TV or the internet yeah. or something, right? And I tell him, listen, I'm at McMaster University. I mean, forty percent of my class are Muslims. <laughs> I know them. Yeah. I mean, I they, and I think the thing is when you get to know them, especially the ones that we have here in Canada. They're, they're ordinary family people. They want a better life for their family. They want to, you know, they want their kids to be successful and healthy, and they want them to fit in to to Canada and and contribute to the country. And they they want to be treated like anybody else. I mean, they're they're not different. But there's so many Americans. You go to many American communities. They have never talked to a Muslim in their yeah. life, but they hate them. What was uh, this person's reaction to what you said? Well, they're just dumbfounded. They just say, well, you must be lucky or something like that, right? <laughs> they, 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 they use the word, they're lucky. I mean, they're just totally, I mean, and yeah. it's more than one person I've talked to, and they don't know how to react to that. I says, you know, they, they never, no one's ever told them something like that. that you know, I know a lot of Muslims, and they're great people, and, you know, I have no trouble with them. They're friends and students, and, you know, they're just like anybody else, you know, and, and they just, they they have this dazed look on their face when I say that because this this goes against what they see on TV. Of course, what they see on TV, they don't see the peaceful, the vast majority who are peaceful, ordinary folks. They they see the you know the extremists, the people on the edge, and they think all oh, Muslims are like that. Uh, I can't let you go, Henry, without asking you about uh, things south of the border, uh, changing of the chief of staff, and obviously uh, the communications uh, director, uh, the mooch is out. What, what are your thoughts on what's transpired in the last 40 years? Well, I mean, it's absolutely incredible. And But I, you know what I suspect is we're going to see still these changes. I don't know how long uh, the present guy is going to stay in there one way or another. I don't know how long Trump... I mean, Trump is an important seems to be an incredibly difficult person to work for. I mean, if you had asked people, would you want to get, if, if Donald Trump offered you a good job, would you want to work for this guy? I mean, most people know this, this is a boss out of hell. 
You know, he, he, he throws his best friends under the bus all the time. Uh, you know, he changes the staff. He berates them and insults them in public. I mean, uh, this I think this chaos is going to, you know, continue. He can't. I just don't think you can run <clears throat> the presidency with that type of attitude. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you can run a real estate business in New York City that way, but you cannot run the presidency of the United States the the way he runs it. It's just, and there's going to be this constant and constant turmoil. Henry Jasek has been with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always enjoy talking to you, Scott. All right, take care, Henry, uh, and have yourself a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. John Thompson is with us, security consultant, strategic intelligence group, and on the line with us now. Hi, John. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Uh, Do you think Kim Jong-un is receiving this message? Well, this this isn't really a message for him. This is um, again another one of the, uh, the semi-annual tests of the components of the American uh, nuclear triad, just as the Russians do. And in the American case, their ICBMs are the Minuteman threes that came out uh, in the 1960s. Um, so they haven't, you know, built a new missile since then. But what they need to do is periodically test the components to make sure these things are still reliable. Um, it's you know, basically a missile. You know, the seals and the gaskets and the pumps go after a while. Some of the fuel is corrosive, so they occasionally take an old one, take the warheads out, test it, and uh, you know, replace the one in the silo with a newer built one, but it's still the same model. So this just a typical scheduled test as far as the missile launch? Pretty much, uh, and it's also, uh, I think it, it says a lot, it's, it's out of Vanderburg uh, Air Force Base, which is on the uh, the coast of California, but the direction the Americans fire them uh, is into the South Pacific towards a, uh, a landing range they've got, you know, well-marked and used for decades, uh, but also it means by firing on that trajectory, they're also letting the Chinese and the Russians know that this is a test. You know, if they were firing it in another direction, say, over Canada, you know, that would set off uh, all sorts of alarm and, and nervousness because it might seem to be a, a launch of a missile towards two other nuclear-armed states. So Tillerson using this uh, regular test to send a message, uh, is it being received? Not really. Uh, North Korea is a, a law and an entity unto itself, and uh, no one is really sure what the leadership is thinking, although, you know, if you look at their, their behavior over the past and what they're doing now, we can make some shrewd guesses. And that would be? Um, North Korea is playing to a captive audience, which is the North Korean people themselves. And yeah. the, uh, uh, the Kim family is sort of, well, they and the, the other 20 ruling families of the country, this is their fantasy game park. Mm-hmm. Now, th- this is the kingdom they control, and everybody is a machine in it. But part of the control is, you know, there's evil, bad em- uh, enemies out there waiting to get us, and the only way you're safe is that we're protecting you. And so they they build these weapon systems, but if there's a rational uh, component in their minds at all, they know they can't actually use these weapons. So, um, so in other, so in other words, John, this message has already already been received, but that's not the purpose of the exercise. No, it, it's not the purpose of the American exercise, and uh, I, 
but right now the Americans are trying to tell the uh, the North Koreans, you know, behave. And we're not. Nobody wants to see you with intercontinental ballistic missiles or with nuclear warheads wedded to those missiles. Because the thing is that since 1953, North Korea really has behaved as an outlaw nation a lot, an awful lot. Uh, in the past, we, you know, we've talked about how Kim Jong-un is looking for uh, the rest of the world to respond most of the time up until very recently. Uh, people, you know, pretty much wouldn't give this person the time of day, let alone a meeting of any sort. Uh, Tillerson is now suggesting that. Is that what Kim Jong-un wants, to all of a sudden meet with world leaders on the world stage? Does that help him? Well, that's that's one of the prevailing theories. Uh, and again, it fits into the, uh, uh, the, the most frequently held narrative that the North Koreans are trying to pretend that they are big boys in the world stage. So they could show pictures of Kim the Third, you know, meeting with other world leaders and say, see, you know, we're way important. They all treat us as you know, we are uh, a nation worthy of respect. So, you know, get back. Don't look at the foreign media unless we give you any, you know, work you know, 12 hours a day for next to nothing. And uh, don't mind if the uh, food rations run short next month. Uh, is it in Kim Jong-un's best interest to meet with uh, other leaders? Well, it's a craving for respectability, but the thing is, we, we also have, besides a history of North Korean uh, truculent behaviors with you know, uh, attacks on uh, aircraft, uh, grabbing fishing boats, kidnapping foreign citizens and holding them forever, uh, we also have their behavior in diplomatic circumstances, which is to, to say nothing, make all sorts of demands, uh, and, and never really negotiate. And remember, North Korea is still technically not at peace with South Korea. In fact, they still refuse to acknowledge the existence of South Korea. Uh, so with this latest uh, latest series of threats, uh, is, the, is the rhetoric revving up now, or is, have they just had a steady, slow path towards where they are now? I, I think the rhetoric is revving up for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that China is, has supported North Korea for a long time, and they originally started doing that back in the 50s and 60s to sort of play off as a foil against Russia. They were both busy competing for, uh, you know, favorite sponsor of North Korea status. Uh, but North Korea is now more of an embarrassment and a detriment than an asset. And in the world, uh, the Chinese were sort of left holding the, uh, the North Korean bag, and now everyone's expecting them to tell North Korea to behave itself. And one of the things that happened in February, for example, uh, the Chinese are uh, desperate to start handling their uh, air pollution problem. I mean, they, mm -hmm. it's a huge crisis in China, uh, and they've got to stop coal burning. And one of the first things they did to cut down on coal consumption was they canceled the coal imports from North Korea. And that was a huge chunk of the North Korean economy. So North Korea is actually in desperate financial trouble and trying very hard not to show it. Hmm. Uh, how can China use North Korea to its advantage uh, now that it's become a thorn in its side? Well, it, it can't really anymore. Uh, it's just that everybody's looked at China to be the sort of the backdoor route to North Korea. Um, but North Korea is backward. Uh, nobody really wants to take charge of it. 
even the South, I mean, the idea of Korean unification seems vaguely attractive, but they, they wouldn't want the financial bill of trying to absorb uh, a 50% increase in their numbers of, of some of the poorest people on Earth, because the North Korean economy has just been that badly managed for that long. Uh, is there any money left in this regime in North Korea? There's always some money left. You can always squeak it through somewhere. Um, but basically, they, they've milked their own economy flat. You know, North Korea is, uh, you, you really have to sort of look at the traveler's tales and from some of the defectors and realize just how desperately poor most of the country is. And it all goes in to support the, the choke case, Pyongyang. Hmm. I mean, you're, you're really looking at something like uh, Capital City and the Hunger Games. So what is Kim Jong-un's ultimate plan? I mean, say he gets away with building a weapon, then what does he do with it? Well, this has been the, the pattern since the mid-1990s. Um, if we look at sort of past North Korean behaviors, a lot of them in, in the 70s and even up into the 80s were, were to position themselves better, uh, well, both for, for propaganda uh, and Again, for that original message I was talking about, but they were doing things like digging tunnels that could you could drive tanks through under the demilitarized zone, and we're trying to send in commando teams to start guerrilla wars in South Korea. Um, since then, most of what they've been doing has been uh, more or less of a, a "don't touch me" attitude. You know that they, uh, uh, if any vessel gets too close to their waters, they may fire on it. Um, they opened up with anti-aircraft weapons on uh, balloons that were carrying uh, propaganda from South Korea over the frontier. And it's everything of this sort of, you know, stay away from us, don't touch me. The use of the rockets and the, and the, uh, the nuclear program, again, is, is sort of a way of saying, if you mess with us, we can really cause you great harm. Um, but that's the point, John. N nobody's messing with them. Nobody's, you know, I mean, are they going to bomb us because uh, China stops buying their coal? I mean, are they going to bomb us because there's sanctions put on them by other countries? I mean... Well, that was the pattern we started to notice in the 1990s, is that they made a big production about starting up uh, the refinement of uh, weapons-grade uh, plutonium uh, and testing a new generation of missiles until uh, uh, President Clinton promised them uh, uh, an infusion of financial uh, aid, uh, cheap fuel supplies, and food aid. And and so I guess the analogy you sort of got is a, is a bratty kid that's been accidentally towed to the candy st uh, aisle hmm. in a grocery store and is holding out making a lot of noise until they get rewarded. Will it, up, will it be up to the rest of the world to get uh, that part of the world out of this mess? It's it's tricky um, because again the the most rational model for North Korea, of course, is that the, the Kim clan and and the other ruling families want to keep ruling. But I think the other point is they want to survive, and at some point North Korea is going to inevitably collapse on them. Um, but you know what do we offer them? And again, if you've been running a country of twenty four million people and have them all dancing to your tune. You know, do you really want to go be an exile in some quiet, uh, remote Chinese city? Hmm. Uh, how can they be funding the missile technology? How advanced can it be with such limited resources? 
The uh, thinking from a lot of people in the intelligence community, and again, there's been um, some evidence to support this, is that they may do a lot of Iran's testing for them. Um, the North Koreans and, and Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps types have been seen together on a number of occasions. So it can also be that sort of North Korean missiles are us is a way of providing missiles for other countries. Um, there are also a lot of ships uh, that you go, go out and you know, without registration or carrying national identity in violation of international maritime law, but are carrying, you know, <clears throat> crates of quote-unquote machine parts uh, to, you know, m the Middle East or troubled areas in Africa. And so uh, the North Koreans are selling a lot of uh, low-grade arms uh, at a very cheap price. And, again, that money goes to support some of their other uh, military programs. What is Russia's thought on North Korea? Well, the Russians, again, are not quite as enthusiastic as they, they used to be about uh, uh, North Korea, not not what they were when the Soviets were going. Um, but at the same time, I don't think they really would be all that excited to see China take the place over. Um, but there are um, North Koreans working inside Russia, you know, again, at uh, you know, minimum wages and, and virtual slave labor conditions. It's one of Russia's little secrets, and it's been handy for some Russian businessmen, you know, to get people that you literally, uh, you know, you pay them a few dollars a day, and somebody else collects most of the money. Uh, what does this say, you know, when you, you, you think of Russia, uh, China, even North Korea as having, you know, at least some sort of symbolic tie with uh, the old communism and, and, and other such dictatorships? What does this say about this way of life? What does it say when all of a sudden no one's standing up for each other in this fight? Um, well, I mean, it's... I think we can all agree that it's a it's a busted ideology, and I think it only takes I think uh, uh, a Western uh, university uh, professional student to actually take Marxism seriously these days. Um, but now North Korea is still living the dream, except that again they put their own stamp on Marxism. So uh, pictures of Marx and Engels are uh, uh, a lot less common than they used to be. Same thing with Lenin. Instead, they. Uh, it's now the, the Kim family, and it's a form of Marxism that uh, nobody a hundred years ago would ever recognize. Instead, it's uh, a personality cult. And in North Korean, uh, the North Korean ideology, remember that Kim Jong-un's uh, grandfather and father are not dead yet. Their, their spirit is supposedly still guiding the country. Uh, you know, I've heard some people still refer to North Korea as... Uh, uh, and that autocracy that is actually being governed by dead people, or two of them anyway. Hmm. Uh, will terrorism and the rise of ISIS change this? Um, well, I mean, we've always got to develop a dozen different crises at once, and there's no uh, clear idea that the North Koreans have been passing arms to uh, ISIS or, or to uh, Al-Qaeda, although I've, I've no doubt they would if they could. Um, but it's actually interesting that, for example, that North Korea will sell you know, old Scud missiles to anyone who cares to launch them. And some of these have appeared in Yemen, where uh, the allies of the Iranians have uh, fired them 
uh, at Riyadh, the capital city of Arabia. So, I mean, again, North Korean weaponry can end up doing very unstabilizing, unsettling things in regional conflicts. Is that more of the concern than uh, them, you know, being contractors for these missiles to be used elsewhere as opposed to lobbing them in tests like they have been? Well, it's it's the way that uh, uh, Iran seems to have beaten the sanctions against it uh, when they were developing their missiles. Uh, and again, uh, a way around some of the restrictions on them developing their own warhead. And you uh, look at a lot of the missiles that Iran has, and they're basically uh, the missiles we see in service in North Korea, just with a different paint job on them and a different name. Hmm. So uh, where is the rest of the world in protecting itself from North Korea? Well, I think everybody is watching North Korea closely. Um, the problem is is that North Korea, well, it's the perpetual problem of Korea. It's stuck in the middle of three areas. You know, you're basically, uh, imagine, you know, one giant gear as Russia, one giant gear as China, the other one is uh, the uh, Asian maritime powers, you know, Japan and South Korea, but with the United States. And right there where they all meet, that's North Korea. So, I mean, they are the, the sticky piece in the machinery, and they're always going to be difficult. Uh, other Asian countries aren't that fond of North Korea. Um, uh, Myanmar remembers that uh, when a visit, uh, visiting deputation of South Korean cabinet ministers showed up, a North Korean agent uh, killed a number of them with a bomb. Uh, the Philippines remember that there have been people kidnapped uh, from, you know, the, from Japan and from other countries, but on their soil and smuggled to North Korea. Uh, and again, we had the, uh, the use of nerve gas in a crowded airport to assassinate uh, a, a cousin of Kim Jong-un just a little while ago. Mm. And that you know, spectacular uh, contempt for public safety. And most of the other countries in the, in the region know this. John Thompson has been with us, security consultant, strategic intelligence group, uh, North Korea. The, uh, obviously, interest continues and what the future holds. John, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Earlier this year, Hamilton was warned about the increase in ticks uh, for this year. People were warned about the threat of Lyme disease. Uh, is it overblown? Let's uh, bring in Dr. Lenora Saxinger, uh, Saxinger, I'm sorry, Dr. Lenora Saxinger. She is Associate Professor, Division of Infectious Diseases, Departments of Medicine and Medical Microbiology and Immunology, University of Alberta, and with us now. Hello, doctor. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to join us, Lenora. Um, over the last few years, man, we've heard a lot about uh, ticks and Lyme disease and how we've got to be protected. Uh, how bad is the tick? How, how cautious do we have to be around all of this? Well, it is. I guess it is true that um, tick-borne diseases are probably increasing in Canada, um, but I do think that there there's kind of fear is outstripping the facts, at least in some places, and that people are also kind of misunderstanding um, what they should do if they've had a tick bite and what the risks of a bite actually are. Now, you being out in Ontario do have higher risk than I do in Alberta, because there are more areas with Lyme ticks um, that have been, you know, well characterized in Ontario. So there is some risk of Lyme disease, and we don't take that lightly. But I do think that um, it's starting to affect people's 
enjoyment of the summer, I think. Like there's people who seem to want to wrap their kids up in plastic and not let them go outside, and I don't think that's an appropriate response either. Why are bites increasing, and why do we see more in certain parts of the, uh, certain parts of the country? Well, the range of the ticks um, that can carry Lyme disease is probably increasing related to changes in climate. And so we're relatively protected with our colder winters, honestly. Um, And so there is kind of this creep of ticks kind of into broader areas. And, of course, you can get a tick bite anywhere in Canada. But the, the type of tick that can carry Lyme disease is a specific type that usually is found in fairly focal areas. And so um, if you go to Public Health Ontario website, you can actually get an estimated risk area for Lyme disease map that can show you, you know, if you're in this area, you should be particularly attentive about inspecting yourself and getting ticks off you. And if you develop an illness, to report that you've been in a Lyme area. So it's not something to ignore, but I don't think that it really warrants necessarily all the hype that we sometimes hear. Uh, Lyme dis- or ticks equal Lyme disease. That's what we hear. Uh, is one always associated with the other? Um, certainly not. I mean, most of the tick, 98% of the ticks that um, we we uh, see in Alberta do not carry Lyme disease. Um, whereas in Ontario, the number is going to be higher. So a tick bite does not mean Lyme. It depends on the type of tick. It has to be a black-legged tick. Um, and it depends on if that tick happens to carry the infection, and a minority usually do. So um, if you get a tick bite, the best thing to do is get the tick off quickly. So inspect yourself if you've been in grassy or wooded areas, get the tick off, and if you develop something, then mention that you've been bit by a tick in a Lyme area, and then we should be able to handle the rest reasonably well. Um, so a, a tick bite by itself doesn't necessarily mean all that much. You have to just be aware of the, the small but still important risk. Where does Lyme disease come from? Obviously, it's spread through ticks. How is it, what's the origin? How do we get that? Um, there's, ticks, can, ticks will drink blood of anything, and so there's reservoir species that can actually harbor the bacteria and then pass it to the ticks, and then the ticks continue to carry it and will pass it on to anything that they bite. Um, and so um, there, there's kind of a bit of a cycle in the environment involving small mammals and ticks. And then the ticks just happen to be waiting for a deer or something to walk by, and you walk by instead. Um, so it's, it's um, a fairly common infection, especially in northeast U.S. Um, and it's not, it's not mysterious. It doesn't necessarily cause lifelong problems, and it's quite treatable with antibiotics. Um, so I, I think that... Um, I think that just like a a regular approach to this as another infection in the world is reasonable, and certainly there are a lot more scary things out there. Uh, I I remember as a kid, you know, you'd see the commercials for the the collars the dogs would wear, and that prevents fleas and ticks and stuff, and and (laughs) fleas and ticks were all kind of in the same sort of category, but there was no (laughs) deadly tick out there. Uh, How did we get from, uh, you know, a flea or a tick, and the dog can wear the collar to prevent it, to now we have to bubble wrap our kids? Um, really, it was a disease that was not recognized much until, until the 70s in Connecticut when uh, they had a pocket of strange, like, fever or joint symptoms in kids, and someone recognized this as a new illness and discovered the bacteria. And over that time, we've seen that there has been geographic spread of the bacteria in the tick population um, to the point where now it's become fairly commonplace in some areas um, and are rare but not zero risk in a lot of other areas. So, uh, so it basically has just kind of evolved over time very slowly. But I think that you know, some of the misunderstandings about it have evolved, have evolved 
at least as quickly, honestly. So how sick can you get from a tick bite? Um, well, if you happen to get a tick bite from a Lyme-carrying tick, um, people can develop what seems like a viral illness. They can have a fever. They can get about 70% of people in Canada, maybe a little more, will get the characteristic rash, which is like a bullseye ra- bullseye's rash that spreads from the site of the tick bite. Um, and if untreated, you can go on to have problems with um, various nerves, including your facial nerve with um, facial weakness on one side is a uh, Lyme sign, other diseases as well. The other things would be like cardiac, your heart conduction can be altered, so you could have heart palpitations or irregularities. And arthritis is another late feature. Um, All of these different stages are treatable with antibiotics. Um, And if you're one of the unlucky people who, after you have real Lyme disease, actually have symptoms that go on for a long time that tend to be less specific, we do know that further antibiotics don't necessarily help that, unfortunately. So um, one of the things that seems to be coming, becoming lower is that you need very, very long treatments of antibiotics off and on for a very, very long time, and that just doesn't seem to be the case biologically. Um, so that's an, one of the things that I think um, has become uh, commonly understood in the absence of evidence, if that makes sense. Uh, so uh, it can be quite uh, traumatic if it's le- if it's left to go. Then it, it can create yeah. quite a bit of problems and definitely and, and, and permanent but, issues. Is that correct, or is that um, that would be rare but possible? Yeah. And so, I mean, you don't take it lightly, and you don't ignore it. If you get a mm-hmm. if you get a tick, get it off. If you get a rash or an illness after a tick bite, go and be assessed and check it out. But um, the vast majority of cases do respond to commonly available oral antibiotics. And, um, and people are getting, I think doctors are getting better at recognizing Lyme disease in areas where it's more common as well. So it shouldn't be a, it shouldn't be a mystery is what I'm saying. So what happens if you are bit by an infected tick? What, what are the symptoms? So, I mean, and the initial thing is often a rash. Um, at the site of the tick bite, um, that can occur a little bit later, but kind of feeling fluey, achy, headachy, um, and then the rash would be the most common thing that people would come in with. Um, some people actually, though, can be bit and infected, and blood tests years later can show that you were infected and you don't recall any problem at all. So that's another potential outcome, um, although we don't talk about that one very much. Um, it's kind of reassuring to know that can happen. Um, and then, and then, like I said, I walked through the different body systems that could be involved because it's a bacterial infection that can spread throughout the body. And um, a lot of people actually will, like I said, have a good improvement on antibiotics once we start them. And most of the cases that I see, for example, are actually imported from the U.S. or from Europe because we don't really have homegrown Lyme in Alberta all that much yet, but you do in Ontario. Is it possible to be bit and not know it? Yes, especially if you're kind of hairy. <laughs> Uh-oh. And if you don't wash very much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, attention campers. <laughs> so it is important to check your body for ticks um, after you've been in wooded or grassy areas because if you find them and pull them off, um, they have to be attached The majority of Lyme cases actually are only transmitted after the tick's been on for at least kind of one to three days. And so if you check yourself daily for ticks and remove them, if you find them, your risk goes down a whole lot. 
so you do have to pay attention to your skin surfaces. Um, and the reason I say hairy and don't wash is um, a lot of people would find it when they bathe. Right. Um, and if you're very hairy, you'd have to be a little bit more careful about checking to see if you have a tick attached. You'd have, to be a, them. you'd have to be a bear, would you not? I'm thinking it. <laughs> So, for the most part, you would know if you've been if you've got a tick on you, you. Wouldn't you know that? Like, do they bite or do they bore in? Well, they they attach, but they have a little bit of anesthetic in their spit, so you don't feel them bite. Mm. And so they, they often people would only notice if they feel a little lump, and then they look, and the lump happens to be a tick that's been sucking their blood. And the longer they're attached, the bigger they get. So it's all actually really quite gross and unpleasant, um, but you don't necessarily feel it, which is why you have to kind of, you know, run your hands over your skin and take a good look to make sure you don't have any unwanted visitors. And the and the adult ticks are fairly big, um, but the nymph ticks, the less mature forms, can be really quite small. And so you do have to have a good look. What would a mature tick look like when it's since latched onto the body? Um, well, they basically look like a little beetle that, with their head buried in your skin, and they can be quite small, but then as they feed, they can actually get to a considerable size. Like, they can be about the size of your small fingernail easily and quite plump um, oh, as, they, as they feed. Yeah. Yikes. Now we get them in the lab to figure out what species they are, and it's, it's kind of impressive how chubby they get. What, uh, <laughs> when it's not you they're chubbing out on, of course. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, so is there, an? I hear there's an art to removing them, uh, to make sure you get the head out, as they say. Yeah, it's not a hill to die on. Like, if, if you pull it out and the mouth parts are still there, there's a theoretic risk of infection associated with that. But I'll be honest, I've never seen an infection from that. It is better to grab it with a pair of tweezers or something by the mouth parts and just pull it right off. Some people advocate doing a kind of twisty thing to get them to release. Um, that's not been, I think, an official recommendation, but it seems reasonably sensible to me. Things that do not seem sensible to me would be like put a lit match on it um, to make it let go because when it lets oh. go, it might, it might actually kind of vomit the, any potential infectious substances into your blood um, oh, or else man. painting them with nail polish or something, also not a good idea. So, What, what about peeing on them? I think, you know, that's jellyfish, isn't it? That's what, jellyfish. Uh, yeah, that's jellyfish. <laughs> I'm not sure if that works either. Um, vinegar works too for jellyfish. It's less unpleasant too. Uh, what about for a tick? Would that work for a tick? I, uh, basically, I would try not to irritate the tick. I would just try to remove it. Mm-hmm. What um, uh, what about dogs? What about animals? I mean, you know, we hear what happens to, to humans. How, does, how do animals react to this? Because obviously they might not know being, you know, rather hairy and don't bathe a lot. <laughs> you know, I, I'm thinking that they might obviously have lots if not tended to. How, do they get sick from this? Yeah, they can actually. So veterinary Lyme disease is a thing. And to be honest, dogs, because they get out there into the bushes and in the grasses a lot more than people, um, do do tend to, you know, if you're looking at what's going on with Lyme disease, looking to veterinary medicine is a place to check. So dogs can be infected with Lyme, and it is a good idea to, to inspect dogs for, for ticks. Um, veterinary vaccination is, I think, an option. I'm not a veterinarian, but um, if I was in a Lyme area, I'd look into it for the dog. And um, it, it is hard they to could jump from the, the dog. Could they not jump from the dog to you? 
I mean, I'm um, thinking oh, once they're jumping on the dog, you probably don't seem very meaty to them, I'm thinking, because they've got no. the hair and the whatever, you know. Well, they theoretically could. I mean, if they hitch a ride on a dog and let go, the dog could bring a tick into the house, for example, and increase your risk that way. I'm not sure that we have any numbers on how often that happens, but ordinarily once a tick gets onto something, it stays till it's fed. Right. And so usually you'd be looking for a tick hanging on your dog and then removing it. You can submit ticks that you remove from yourself or your dog, um, through public health so that they can include it in the data because I think it is important to track where, where the disease is, is able to be acquired. And so I actually would recommend people look into doing that if they're, if, they're, uh, if they're encountering ticks to keep them, not chuck them away. Do we have, uh, is there information or data on how many dogs are affected or cats are affected by this? Is it killing dogs and cats? It doesn't kill them. They can become ill, though. Um, I actually did see some veterinary data, but I don't, I don't know it off the top of my head. It would be maybe interesting to get an Ontario vet to weigh in because I think that there is clinical disease in dogs, but like as, as with people, you can give them antibiotics to improve it. There probably also are dogs that might get infection but then don't get treated and end up living their doggy life without too much difficulty, but I'm not sure um, the breakdown of how often that would happen. Uh, where are they? You said Ontario more so than in the western provinces. Uh, how do we protect ourselves? Where are they less or more likely to jump onto you from? Uh, where should we be cautious? Okay, well, ticks, um, when they're looking for a blood meal, they like to climb to the top of long grasses or to the end of a branch and just kind of hang out there with their legs out waiting to jump onto you. Um, so wearing clothes that protect you from getting latched onto, so long pants, um, socks. If you want to look really fashionable, you can tuck your socks into your pants. I um, love that look. I do that all the time. And um, now that, I've got an actually, ex- now I've got an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> but but actually, that plus bug spray does help. So regular bug spray can actually also help prevent tick bites. Um, checking yourself if you've been in a wooded area and removing ticks if you see them, because if you remove them early, you don't really have risk of getting infection. Um, and then just looking at the Ontario Lyme, rap, um, Lyme map, unfortunately, lots of really nice places to go um, do have yeah. uh, probable Lyme activity. So, you know, going out towards Niagara Falls, um, down towards Long Point, um, there are areas that are, are thought to be higher risk. Um, so if you're going to a risk area, being a little extra careful with bug spray and tick checks is totally reasonable. Now, if you do get an illness, yep. get checked out. Uh, so if the you know kids are out running around and they got this thing latched to them, does a parent feel safe getting rid of this themselves or should they go to a doctor? How do you react to this? You know, it's kind of funny because I often get asked to remove ticks from other people's children. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't have special training. Give me the tweezers. Um, so you can pull them off and put them in a container that the tick can't get out of. A small jar, for example, and uh, and and take them in. But if you're uncomfortable doing that, there, there's no reason why you'd have to go to healthcare to get the tick off. Um, but uh, if you're uncomfortable doing that, I also think it's a reasonable thing to get it removed. If it's someplace quite difficult, like or sensitive, you might feel more comfortable taking them in. But Ooh. you want to get them off. So if there's going to be a substantial delay, I would just get, get the tweezers and get yeah. it off. How long do they live, and where are they getting their blood before they jump on you? Um, they can get blood from birds and other small creatures and mammals. The nymphs like to feed on like mice, for example. But then the, the larger ticks like to look for larger targets like people or deer. Um, the, they actually can overwinter, so they can live for a couple of few years. And um, the, they, 
Actually, you know, that's a good question. I'm not sure how often they want to take a blood meal. I think they don't have to do it that often, but there sure can be a lot of ticks, especially in moist areas. So moist, wooded, brushy areas, you can actually encounter quite a few ticks per kind of square meter. So there is just risk, I think, because of lots of ticks. And, of course, uh, for us here in Ontario, there is uh, information available of some of the areas that are more prone than others just to make sure you take that extra precaution if you are going out. Yep, publichealthontario.ca. Dr. Lenora uh, Saxinger has been with us, Associate Professor, Division of Infectious Diseases, Departments of Medicine and Medical Microbiology and Immunology, University of Alberta. (laughs) Although you are getting a very warm summer, are you not out in Alberta? Yes, very warm and wet, so maybe we're going to get tickier too. You're going to get Ontario ticks coming in. Look out. (laughs) That's the worst kind, believe me. Uh, Lenora, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. No problem. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.